Good morning. We are here today to discuss Parshas Kisisa. And yes, it is still 2024. And the title for today's class is Achieving Ultimate Intimacy. This month, the month of Adar 1, it's one of the unusual Jewish leap years, and therefore we have an extra month. So this is the first Adar, is sponsored by Alex and Danielle Galski and family. In memory, specifically, in other words, in honor and in memory of their beloved grandparents, Abraham, Bela, Guillermo, and Dora, and also in loving memory of Uncle Alberto Galski. I've spoken uh, some about the Galskis in the past. I just want to mention how appreciative we are of their sponsorship and their friendship and all the amazing things that they continue to do for our Jewish people here in South Florida, as well as across the world. So, <clears throat> Parashas Kisisa is a very, very packed section of the Torah in which we discuss not only many laws that are raised at the end of the parsha, but we have the giving of the half coin and we have certain laws relating to the Holy Temple, including the washing of the priests with the basin that was designated for that purpose. We have a description of the anointing oil and we have the recounting of the epic and tragic story of the worship of the golden calf, the aftermath of that story. And our focus today is going to be on a subset discussion of the aftermath of that story of the sin of the golden calf. And that's why we are talking about intimacy because ultimately the relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people is referred to in many interesting ways. One of them is that of a father and child and another is that of husband and wife. So there are many different facets of these uh, of the relationship that we have together with Hashem. And today we are going to correlate it to the aspect of marriage because the rabbis focus on that in our parsha quite heavily. Now the concept of intimacy is an important one as studies show that having meaningful, long lasting relationships which is at least a loose definition of intimacy, that they are meaningful and long-lasting, contributes to both happiness and longevity. Here's a brief excerpt from a Harvard Medical School article. This is what the article says. You probably know there are many ways to improve your well-being and chances of living longer, such as exercising more or eating better. But did you know that maintaining meaningful relationships also may play an important role in health, happiness, and longevity. Good, close relationships appear to buffer us from the problems of getting old, says Dr. Robert Waldinger, a psychiatrist with Harvard-affiliated Massachusetts General Hospital. So that's the excerpt, and you can all look up a lot more online if you want uh, to know more about how long-lasting, intimate relationships improve quality of life and length of life and physical health. Now, there's a, a throwaway line that I've heard that intimacy is described as into, me, see, meaning that an intimate relationship is one that allows for the other person to see into themselves, into, me, see, sort of a play on word on the word intimacy. The dictionary definition, <coughs> which is, of course, the state of being intimate, means a familiarity, which is probably not coincidental that true familiarity probably is correlated with family. 
right? So a person with whom we have an intimate relationship is probably one with whom we have a sort of family type relationship. And a second definition of intimacy in the dictionary is something of a personal or private nature. Now, <clears throat> one of the most typical examples that we think of when we think of an intimate relationship is that of husband and wife. Due to the fact that many, if not most people, experience ups and downs in the husband-wife relationship, popular culture has a whole subset of humorous jokes describing this angst. As for example, you never know true happiness until you are married, and then it's too late. And the reason that this type of joking exists is because it's not so easy to maintain the intimate relationship. And so part of what we're going to be exploring today is the healing of troubled intimate relationships, whether they be marital or otherwise, and trying to do something about solving whatever strife leads to this kind of breakdown and thereby hopefully promote healthy intimate communications and feelings and establishing a better intimate relationship. Harsha's Kisisa is a critical research source for the subject of intimacy building. The story of the golden calf serves to teach us the challenges of maintaining the intimacy that was initially built just 40 days earlier with the advent of Hashem manifestly speaking the Ten Commandments in such a grandiose fashion that the entire people were privy to such an incredible level of prophecy and intimate connection with Hashem. Only 40 days later, here we find the Jewish people are worshiping, at least when I say the Jewish people, we're going to actually talk about that a little further today, at least some element of the Jewish people is worshiping the golden calf. <coughs> and of course, all the, the fallout from that, which includes people dying, threatening to wipe out the entire Jewish nation, and the smashing of the first set of tablets, which Moshe brings down from Mount Sinai. But in this same parsha, we also learn about the forgiveness that Hashem grants the Jewish people. The second set of tablets, and in fact, just prior to Moshe coming down with the second set of tablets, we learn about something called the 13 attributes of Hashem, which speak about God's mercy, his being slow to anger, his graciousness, etc., etc. So obviously, this is fertile ground for a discussion on understanding how to restore and heal an intimate relationship. So an overarching concept that we will deal with today is building durable intimacy. Now, here are the first few sentences which lead up to the second set of tablets and the 13 attributes of Hashem, along with some of Rashi's comments to these verses. So it is chapter 34, sentences one through four, that's what we're covering. But the, the, the context of this is that the Jewish people have already suffered the consequences of having worshiped the golden calf. God has several conversations with Moshe in which Moshe is able to obtain a very significant amount of forgiveness from Hashem. Now chapter 34, sentence one says, Hashem spoke to Moshe, carve out for yourself two tablets like the first ones, and I, Hashem, will write on the, ta on the tablets the words that were on the first 
tablets that you, Moshe, broke. That's an explicit sentence in the Torah, and you should know that from this sentence, um, we understand that Moshe only carved out the stone, like the word H-E-W. He hewed out the stone from a quarry. Rashi says that actually this quarry suddenly appeared in his tent, and Moshe was able to carve it from there. But Hashem is the one who etched, if you will, right, carved into the stone the actual words. And the rabbis also say, by the way, over here, that Hashem pointing out that Moshe broke them was a way of actually ratifying, condoning, agreeing to Moshe's unilateral decision to smash these tablets. The next sentence says that Hashem says to Moshe, be prepared, meaning get ready for the next morning. And in the morning, you should go up again to Mount Sinai and stand for me there on the top of the mountain. No man should go up with you. No man shall be seen upon that entire mountain, maybe even the area of the mountain. That's not crystal clear. And no animals should be allowed to go up the mountain. And there should not be any grazing near that mountain. And then it says that Moshe carved two tablets of stone, like the first ones. Now, in general, we say the word stone, but our tradition is that they were made out of sapphire, just like Moshe's staff also was carved from, or made, I should say, from sapphire. And Moshe woke up early in the morning. He went up to Mount Sinai, like Hashem commanded him, and he took with him up the mountain the two tablets of stone sapphire that he carved upon which later, obviously, Hashem carved into the stone, etched into the stone, the words of the Ten Commandments. So, what I'd like now to do is share with you Rashi commentary of some uh, of his, you know, these uh, phrases in, in a couple of these sentences, specifically uh, the first one and the third one. So, first of all, Rashi says that Hashem showed Moshe this stone quarry, in other words, sapphire quarry, within Moshe's own tent. Um, now, I'll just mention as a side, because it's pretty cool, right, that such a thing would happen. And the likelihood is that the reason that that happens is because the color sapphire, which is blue, does represent kingship and godliness. In fact, we are taught that the divine throne is also made out of sapphire. And at this point in the storyline, Hashem is visiting Moshe in his tent, and that seems to have become Hashem's resting place. So in between Mount Sinai and the building of the tabernacle, Hashem's resting place seems to be the tent of Moshe. Therefore, it actually makes a lot of sense that there would be a sapphire stone quarry there. That's just like an interesting aside, and it does give a good backdrop for a lot of what we're talking about. So Hashem showed him this sapphire in his tent, and he said to carve the stone from there and the shavings or the chips that splintered off when Moshe carved this, these two tablets were actually Moshe's to keep. And from there, Moshe became wealthy, which is a very interesting teaching. And that's, we're going to, we're going to discuss that today. Why does Moshe merit this wealth and why specifically in this fashion? Moshe could have become wealthy like the rest of the Jews when they took all of the wealth of Egypt out with them. But over here, we learn that Moshe has a different source of wealth, and this is the stone uh, from within his tent.
now we get to the more complex explanation that Rashi gives. And this is also on this first sentence where Hashem said, listen, carve new stones to replace the ones that you broke. And here is a parable that the rabbis give to us. And it takes a little bit of a mind concentration. I hope everybody will stay with me. It's not that complicated, but you do have to kind of orient your mind to this parable. And the parable is that there was a king who traveled to a remote country, leaving behind his engaged bride, not married yet, but they were engaged, what we would call his betrothed, at home, wherever you know he lived, back with her handmaidens. Now, what happened was, is that a rumor came out that there was a betrayal or a misconduct of the bride, but it turned out that it was really only the handmaidens and not the bride that committed whatever <coughs> betrayal or disloyalty that there was. And at that moment, the bridesmen, now the bridesmen were today what we would be called, what we, people would call the shatran. And thank God the pop, you know, the fiddler on the roof, this concept has become popularized that there's a matchmaker, right? So there was a person who would be responsible to help make the match or to at least help the relationship proceed properly. So at this point, when this rumor went out that the betrothed woman who was to be the queen did some act of disloyalty or betrayal, even though it was really the handmaidens, the shadchan, right? What we call the bridesman actually tore up the marriage document, the marriage contract saying that if the king thinks to himself, oh, if this is the way she's going to behave, then off with her head, I can always say, hey, you know, you didn't actually marry her. It's not such a big deal. It doesn't look so bad for you. The marriage contract is ripped up. Don't worry. That's what the, the, the shatran did. Well, the king eventually made an inquiry and found that the immorality, the betrayal, the disloyalty, whatever word you want to use, had only been because of the handmaidens. And then the king became reconciled to his betrothed. And therefore, the king said to the shaman, hey, write another contract. Because the first one was torn up. And the king said, you have to write it because you tore it up. That's the parable. So in our story, we're talking about Moshe, the golden calf, the Jewish people. The king is the holy one, blessed be he. The handmaidens are the mixed multitude. Those were the other nations that joined the Jewish people on their way up from Egypt and really fomented and instigated the initial construction of the golden calf. But it wasn't the let's just call it the main body of the Jewish people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rather, it was the mixed multitude. And therefore, Moshe, who was the friend of the bride, the Shatran, if you will, he, <coughs> and when the sin happened, he smashed the marriage contract, which is the first set of tablets, whereupon eventually there was a re reconciliation that was achieved between Hashem and the Jewish people. And then Hashem, the king, said to the, the bridesmaid, right, the shatran, hey, look, the, uh, the bridesman, right, the shatran said to the bridesman, hey, look, you have to write a new contract. 
That is the parable Rashi brings from, you know, much earlier sources in the rabbis. And so what this parable is basically saying is something that is very hard to understand, which we're going to be addressing right now. <clears throat> it seems that according to this explanation, the main body of the Jewish people did not themselves desire to build the golden calf. It came from the mixed multitude, which is comparable to the handmaidens, right? To the maids of the engaged woman to the king. And just like the king originally thought, oh, it's the hand, it's the, it's the bride, it's his betrothed that committed this betrayal. And he thought to kill her, so to Hashem, so to speak, thought to kill the Jewish people. But then it came out that it was really the mixed multitude. And therefore the Shachan said, oh, he smashed the, the marriage contract so that the king wouldn't have to kill the bride, which turns out that she was kind of innocent. And therefore, when it came time for the full rejoining of king and bride, Hashem and the Jewish people, now a new contract needs to be written, written by the Shachan or the bridesmaid. So <clears throat> the obvious question is, it's okay for a king to not know what happened back home. It's not so okay for God to not know what happened back home, right? So even if you want to say that, look, uh, you know, the, the king would fly off the handle and he would de decide to kill his bride because of the disloyalty that he mistakenly thought came from his bride instead of her handmaidens, how does that explain why Hashem would have any reason to think that the Jewish people are guilty if in fact they were not guilty? So that's really the question that we're, we're going to deal with. And a similar way, another way to kind of ask that question is why is the initial rumor of immorality or betrayal attributed to the betrothed of the king if indeed the bad conduct was only committed by the handmaids and not by the engaged woman, the bride-to-be of the king? And so are we therefore to understand <coughs> from this parable that suspecting the engaged bride of the king was just a complete mistake? Oops, I was going to kill her. Whew, good thing I didn't kill her because it turns out she wasn't guilty. Which even if you want, want to say such a thing about a human flesh and blood king, it's a very difficult thing to apply to Hashem. So is it really possible that Hashem didn't realize that it was not the Jewish people, it was the mixed multitude, and instead he thought to kill the Jewish people? And that just doesn't resonate at all. On top of that problem is that we know that even after it was clear that, you know, it was really instigated by the, the, the people that were the mixed multitude, nonetheless, the Jewish people were still on the outs for quite a while until atonement was achieved. And one of the main aspects of atonement is that the Jewish people need to build a tabernacle. Well, if that's the case, then, you know, the whole thing was really a mistake. So just say, okay, good. You know, it was the handmaids, it wasn't them. So there's no problem. That just doesn't really fit at all into everything that we know actually happened after the sin of the golden calf. And then we are also going to ask is why does Moshe merit to become wealthy through the carving of the second set of tablets? What does that have to do with anything? Why is it important for us to know? Why does it in fact happen? Doesn't seem to make much sense either. And then lastly, just going to point out that Rashi makes one more fascinating observation. He says that the first time that Hashem appeared to give the Torah, it was done with tremendous fanfare, tremendous noise. It was an unbelievable display of thunder and lightning. And it was just an incredible, very loud, uh, you know, experience. 
And says Rashi that because of that, that allowed for the evil eye to infiltrate and to cause a problem, i.e. the golden calf. And therefore, the second time, it was a very private kind of a deal. Hashem told Moshe, come up to the mountain with the new stone tablets. I'll carve it. I'll give it to you. Go down. There was no thunder. There was no lightning. There was no manifest revelation. It wasn't uh, necessarily even something that was witnessed by other people, depending on how you read the sentences. So it was a very private deal the second time. And the obvious question is, if it's a problem to do it with such fanfare and to make such a, 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 so to speak, movie out of it, right, to make it such a production, so why does Hashem do it, right? Why would Hashem bring about a situation that he does it so publicly that would allow for an evil eye? Well, why do that if the better way to do it, and this is actually Rashi's language, that there's nothing better than modesty. That's where Rashi concludes his comment. He says, the second time around, it was done very quietly because there's no better approach than the modest approach. Okay, so then why did Hashem do it the other way the first time around? So I'd like to suggest that we need to kind of re-understand what intimacy is. We mentioned in our opening that intimacy is a way of saying into me see or <coughs> familiarity, <coughs> right? Something that connotes a very close relationship. So I would like to suggest that we need to get a little bit more brass tacks about it and explain that true intimacy is built on a thorough understanding and complete acceptance of the other. So it's not enough to say, you know what? I like this person. Maybe this also seems to happen. People go through a harrowing experience together and suddenly they're like, you know, good friends because they, they, they dealt with something difficult together. And that could happen. People could feel close to other people for lots of reasons. People can bond over very specific things. But I suggest that true intimacy, especially long lasting intimacy, is built on complete understanding, meaning as much as possible to understand the other and also to accept the other. Now, since um, I'm sure present company accepted, you know, since nobody's perfect, you know, part of accepting another person is accepting the things that are imperfect about the other person. But in order to really accept those things, you actually have to really understand those things, which is why in building an intimate relationship, a lot of communication is necessary because you have to thoroughly understand the other person. That's the only way you could really accept the other person. If you accept the other person and you don't know what you're getting into, that's what we call buyer's remorse, right? That doesn't work. It doesn't build intimacy. So therefore, there's a very interesting consequence, I think, that happens, which is what the rabbis are pointing to in this entire parable. When there is true intimacy, it means, again, thorough understanding of the other with complete acceptance. You then also have total loyalty. That's a natural consequence of intimacy is loyalty to the other person. Because with the understanding and with the acceptance, part of acceptance means I'm on your team. I'm behind you. I support you. I obviously don't betray you. No matter what I know that might be deficient, so to speak, of you, right? At the end of the day, because I accept you, it means that I'm loyal to you. So the therefore is, it should not be possible for a person 
who's truly loyal to their intimate loved one to have a support group, to have friends, to have maids, to have helpers that are disloyal to my loved one. If in the story, as we find in this parable, the king goes to another country and there's disloyalty <coughs> in the home of the betrothed, it is directly attributable to how loyal the betrothed is to the king, because even if she's not the one who betrayed, she should not be, it should not be possible that her handmaidens would be disloyal. The fact that that's in her home, in her backyard, so to speak, does speak to the truth of the level of the intimacy in the initial relationship, in the initial engagement between the king and the betrothed. And that's what I think the rabbis are saying. If the truest acceptance of Hashem, the truest closeness of Hashem, as much as understanding, which of course is what Torah is all about, to understand Hashem, to that ability at that time that they had to understand Hashem, if that had happened, <coughs> the Erev Rav would have been quickly shut down. The fact that the Erev Rav becomes a movement the fact that we have this mixed multitude that is able to demonstrate and they're able to proclaim whether it's Israel is an apartheid state, which I'm going to talk about in a second, or any other insanity speaks to the general population and their understanding and their reality to the loyalty of the country that is the United States of America. Because if you understand democracy at all, you understand that Israel is not an apartheid state. If your definition of democracy is getting what I want when I want, okay, so then maybe you could think that Israel is an apartheid state, but that's not true democracy. So that's really, I'm using that as an example to what the rabbis are saying here. If the handmaidens of the engaged, the bride-to-be of the king are able to be disloyal to the king, that does speak to a... <coughs> tenuous and incomplete intimacy relationship between the betrothed and the king. Now, enters the marriage counselor, the shatran, the person who's trying to help the situation, and he breaks the marriage contract because guess what, people? You can't get engaged hoping that intimacy will be built. You don't, you don't get married hoping that that's going to happen. It's true. I'm 100% on board with the idea that real love develops over time. But in order to get to real love, there has to be genuine intimacy building, which requires tremendous understanding of the other, right? Obviously, we're talking both ways. Tremendous acceptance of the other. We're talking both ways. And then a tremendous sense of loyalty that you can have confidence in happening. And because the Jewish people allowed for this rebellion to take place by the mixed multitude, not to mention the fact that it seems clear that Jews fell into be, per, being persuaded to also worship the golden calf, and there's very clear proofs to that, which I'm not gonna get into now. <clears throat> it's not only that they allowed other people to rebel, they, be, they fell victim to that as well, which unfortunately, we have our own fellow Jews that don't understand the truth about 
the war in Israel today, right? That's a problem of our whole Jewish nation. That's not just a problem with those people. That means that we are not properly bonded because otherwise that should not be allowed to form and it certainly should not be allowed to take such a foothold and affect so many of our fellow Jews. So what the Shadchan, the person trying to help the relationship, in this case Moshe does, is he breaks the marriage contract to say we need a rebuild of the intimacy aspect of this relationship. We need a redo. What was and we thought was the commitment was not actually thorough and genuine. And the word genuine is really what we're going to speak about now because that's going to be the end result. In order to have an intimacy building relationship, each person needs to be a genuine person. What is a genuine person? A person that self-examines, that knows their positives and their negatives, doesn't pretend anything otherwise, and is not swayed by other people's opinion of themselves, but only by, by what they know about themselves. That's what a genuine person is. So breaking the marriage contract is a way of saying that the engagement should not have yet taken place. The initial thought, quote unquote, to destroy the Jewish people is based on the lack of intimacy that clearly exists. Now we know that as a fact, even if the Jewish people themselves, right, the descendants of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are not hankering, so to speak, for building a golden calf, they certainly stand around while it happens, and some of them even fall victim into worshiping. And so therefore, that itself allows for a reason for the king to destroy the bride, you know, the to be, the one who's engaged. But what the Shadchan does is say, no, 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 let's 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 do a redo. Let's break, let's stop right here. Let's let's admit that the relationship is not what it should have been. And therefore the betrayal or whatever disloyalty that came from other people surrounding the situation definitely is a problem, but we can fix it because the actual betrayal wasn't by the bride herself. So when Moshe breaks the tablets, what he is targeting is the lack of genuineness in the relationship on the part of the nation. So very simply put, just to give it, you know, very clear, when the Jewish people are standing at Mount Sinai, they were terrified. So they could have told themselves, oh, yeah, we're totally into this. This is great. This is amazing. Inside, they're kind of like mortified. What do we get ourselves into? And again, there's many, um, many reasons to say this, many sources that back this up. And the bottom line is that they're accepting, but is their acceptance really that they're all in or they feel a little pushed in, a little coerced in. And so therefore Moshe says, we have to go back and redo it. And the only way that this gets fixed, of course, is by the Jewish people looking into themselves, understanding their own deficiencies, understanding that allowing the golden calf means that they're really not comfortable with the relationship, asking themselves why they're not comfortable with the relationship. <coughs> because really what the golden calf says is, that, look, God, we had a little too much closeness, we're going to worship you the way that we want to worship you through an intermediary. I don't want to get heavy into that today. That's that's another whole discussion <clears throat> that we've discussed in the past, understanding what the golden calf really is. But basically, it's not an agreed upon intimacy, right? That's very clear. Hashem says no images. Here's an image. Hashem says, I want you to talk to me directly, or you ask for Moshe to talk to you, fine. 
but there's no such thing as through a golden calf. And therefore, what the Jewish people really need to do is look into their own selves to understand what it is that they're looking for, why they're uncomfortable, what they should have done differently to begin with, and how to approach this again a new time, which guess what? We call that Yom Kippur. And what's Yom Kippur all about? Yom Kippur is about fixing ourselves to be ready for the relationship. I think most people think Yom Kippur is a way of pleading to God for forgiveness. No, Yom Kippur is about getting down to our genuine selves. The Day of Atonement is to recognize what I did wrong, taking responsibility for myself and not saying, oh, God, you know, you're making me do this or you say that this is prohibited and okay, I'm going to go along with it. Forgive me for doing it anyways. That's not what it's all about. It's recognizing that everything that Hashem says we should do is actually what's really good for us. And every time we don't do it, we're actually being disloyal to our genuine selves. Forget about disloyal to God. And so therefore, that's the way to build an intimate relationship by recognizing our own deficiencies, what we need to work on by being completely honest about it and completely communicative about it, which is what we do on Yom Kippur with confession. It means we have to speak it out and we have to say, I really am wrong. I really have these issues. Can you accept me? Is it okay? Can we move forward now that I understand who I really am? Are you willing to assist me on that? And I'm committing to be better. And of course, the answer Hashem always has for that is yes. And that's what the 13 attributes always speak about, which of course explains why the 13 attributes is the centerpiece of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so that's why in this very story, what we find is that in order to have lasting intimacy, we have to be able to redo the process of what is genuine in the relationship. We have to go back and say, what is it that I need to work on in order to be in this relationship properly? Can you accept me? And then, of course, we have to turn around and say, what is it that I'm accepting about Hashem or husband and wife, the spouse? What am I accepting about my spouse or the parent and child, what am I accepting about my child or my parents? All of this is part of the intimacy building. Somebody told me recently they got divorced and um, <clears throat> after they got divorced, they came to speak to me. I have my own divorce experience and they asked me for some advice and um, they actually told me that this was the best advice that they got and they took it to heart and it was the best thing. I had no idea what I said. So I asked him if uh, you could remind me what, what that advice was. So he said that when he told me he was, uh, you know, divorced and he was then thinking about starting a new relationship, aside for telling him to wait a certain amount of time, which I'm not saying he followed or didn't follow, that's a different story. Um, I told him, now think about whatever your part was in the original relationship that failed. Try to deeply think about whatever part you played in that breakdown and work on that now. Don't wait for the relationship to develop and then, you know, see how things are. Take stock of yourself now. Say to yourself, what is it that I need to fix based on my knowledge of the first relationship? And now work on that so that when the new relationship happens, you'll be ready to deal with it on a genuine basis. And that's really what we're talking about here today. If a person is able to be honest with themselves and then be honest with the other person, 
then you can actually build a relationship, not only of intimacy now, but one that lasts into the future. And so <coughs> this parable explains to us the disloyalty that was not expressed directly by the bride-to-be, but the disloyalty that happened with her handmaidens reflects the lack of genuine intimacy in the relationship. Because if there was genuine intimacy, there would be ironclad loyalty and the disloyalty from the maidens never would have happened. And the final thought is that any person who's trying to help somebody else's marriage or other intimate relationship has to speak about what is actually the genuine quality of human being that you are are you presenting that to the other person and endure in this relationship by introspecting, being honest, going back and communicating, making sure that you're being accepted and making sure that you're doing the same for the other person. You're thoroughly understanding them. You're accepting them on a genuine basis. And for this reason, Moshe merits the great wealth because as much as Moshe, so to speak, would like to have the sort of, you know, kind of feather in his cap. Oh, you know, I was the go-between, you know, God and the Jewish people. God gave the Torah to me to the Jewish people. Everything is, you know, wonderful. Moshe takes it upon himself. God did not ask him. The Jewish people did not ask him. In fact, the rabbis tell us that they were both struggling with Moshe to give them the tablets. And Moshe breaks it, you know, on his own against the will of both God and the Jewish people, so to speak, initially. Of course, we mentioned that Hashem ultimately agrees with him because Moshe says, listen, nothing matters other than the two of you having a truly intimate relationship, was, which is built on genuine, thorough understanding of each other, being your genuine selves, and then having tremendous loyalty for each other. That's ultimately what modesty means, which is why the rabbis say, look, the first time around, the Torah was given with tremendous fanfare. It was an incredible show <coughs> of everything magnificent. But, you know, part of uh, that means, oh, well, who, you know, if, if you give a bride her perfect wedding day, so then, hey, everything's great. You know, like, it must be wonderful if the wedding ceremony is wonderful. And that allowed for the Jewish people to go along with a process with which they weren't yet 100% in tune with. You know, they were conflicted. And again, there's many reasons to believe that. And so, therefore, the second time around, you can determine what is truly genuine when it's done completely modestly, with complete modesty, modestly, I should say, it's done, you know, in a way that is completely modest. And if that's what counts, then you have a real relationship. What people really need are the fanfare and that everybody should think it was wonderful. Everybody should be so impressed at this beautiful wedding. That's not about the true, genuine quality of the relationship. And so therefore the rabbis are telling us that what a modest person always thinks about is what is the genuine truth and that nothing else really matters. And that's why the rabbis say nothing is better than modesty. So a modest person will comport themselves in a way where they are the barometer of their behavior, not other people. Whereas an immodest person will be determining their behavior based on what other people will think or want other people to think. And that is an immodest person. So I think we'll conclude there and take any questions or comments. Question. Question. Thank you. See you next Thank week. You, yes.
no, no, it's okay. Um, okay, we have a question here in the room from Dr. Rothman. My question, how do you explain that? I love the explanation because it, it really helps me understand it, but how, how do you explain Aaron's participation? Yeah, so Dr. Rothman is bringing up one of the, one of the very difficult aspects of the entire storyline of the golden calf, <laughs> and that is that Aaron, the, who eventually becomes the high priest, which even further complicates the question, seems to go along with the fact that the Jewish people want to construct a golden calf. And so this is, you know, a very, very big topic here. I'm just going to say one thing about it, and that is that constructing a golden calf is very, very different than worshiping it. And if you'll notice, what Aaron is really angling for is that maybe it's okay to construct it, but they only worship it the next day. And the only reason they worship it the next day is because the people have such a, a, a desire to, to do this that they get up early. Had they, so to speak, gotten up later, then by that time Moshe would have already been down and they wouldn't have worshipped it. There's a lot more to say on the subject. Basically, he's trying to stave off the people and you have to accept that there's a huge difference between having a golden calf and worshipping it. So there's a lot more to say about that another time. Anyone else for today? We're good. Uh, yes, Mrs. Kanoff, please. Perhaps one of the things that might be brought up at that other time is that I almost see a degree of entrapment with Aaron because he doesn't really do much to form the golden calf. He just throws all the gold into it and a golden calf is formed. Like almost... Yeah. So, like, it almost indicates that there is something going on other than human effort. Usually, to to make an idol, human effort is involved. And this here, we just threw gold into, I don't remember what the venue was, and then yeah. appeared. Yeah, so there seems to be very little that he does, and, and that there is a kind of emergence that's true. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's another it's another whole thing that I usually say takes about three hours. So maybe maybe one time we'll do a one off and do a three hour class. Thank you. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. And yes. what with Mrs. Kenoff just said, that almost sounds like the and Satan's mentioned mentioned in this partial. Yeah. And that's so difficult for me too because I have such you know how does these things happen? Yeah. So, okay, and, and so Dr. Rothman is pointing out that also we have seemingly an emergence of Satan and the, you know, unholy um, spirits or, you know, black magic. Look, the fact is that um, we're just going to leave it with this. Whenever true greatness <clears throat> can emerge, all that is evil is completely threatened. So therefore they become their most powerful because their survival is at stake. So another way to say this is, if the Jewish people don't worship the golden calf, that means that the Satan, the evil inclination is, up, is going to be destroyed. So therefore, in um, being cognizant of that fact, they become much more active. Uh, that's, that's the way good and evil works. And so it takes a superhuman choice to conquer it which you know the first man did not do in terms of the test of the tree of knowledge and the jewish people did not do in terms of the test of the golden calf so that's sort of the outline to be continued have a great day everyone <laughs>